Now I want to share with you from the 21st verse of Jude. It speaks of the love of God. So beautifully put. And thank you, Gerald, for singing my favorite song. That's a gorgeous song. When Bev Shea first brought it to England in 1954, it was the first time I'd ever heard it. And uh, in our family, we learned it. We used to sing it all the time. It's a gorgeous thing. Now, the, the apostle here says, he says, Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Now, if you'll just turn the page for a moment into the third chapter of 2 Thessalonians, and let me share with you there verse 5. Verse 5. Again, I'm using the NIV for convenience here. But may the Lord direct your hearts to God's love and Christ's perseverance. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. This is something we don't hear very much of. And I think basically it's because our doctrine is very faulty. We argue in the wrong direction. I made a statement in our Bible study class on Wednesday that was challenged. And I'm glad it was challenged. It's a joy. I only ever get challenged once in a great while. But it was a joy to be challenged. And this was the statement. God only created one being. And God only ever created one being. That was the statement who had the ability to choose, and he was Satan. And of course, immediately, the thought came up, well, what about Adam and Eve? They didn't have a choice. God said, thou shalt not. There was no choice. Now, you may argue what they chose to sin, to disobey. No. Their sin was disobedience, which was a direct rebellion against God which revealed the natural person, the natural part of them, and they rebelled. They didn't choose, they rebelled against God. However you want to read that early story, they rebelled against God. Now let's look at us. You see, the person that decides that he is, he looks across the road and he sees a super sports car, and he feels, I must have that sports car. He commits the sin of covetousness. But the Bible says, do not covet. And when he starts to commit covetousness, he is a person not choosing to covet. He is a person coveting in rebellion against what he's already got, what God has already given him. He's rebelling against God. But then take it a step further. He decides he's coveted the car, now he'll steal the car, and he'll get into grand auto theft, and he'll drive it away. And he says, well, the devil made me do it. No, the devil didn't. Oh, no. That's his responsibility. And God did not give him the ability to steal. In rebellion, he stole. In rebellion, he drove that car away. You say then, what hope is there? This is exactly the place that Jesus brought his disciples when he, they, they turned to him and they said, well, then who can be saved? If we have this natural ability to rebel against the living God, if we hate God that much, who can be saved? And Jesus said, that's the very reason why you need to understand repentance. Now you see, when we say, well, he chose to do this, he chose to do that, we put the onus upon the person and their mind and their ability to choose. 
And the moment we start doing that, we elevate ourselves because we say, in effect, with great spiritual pride, look at me. I didn't choose to go that deep. I didn't choose to go that far. I'm a little more spiritually superior. That's called spiritual pride, which is rebellion against God, which is rebellion exactly the sort of rebellion that Satan had against God, and you didn't choose it. You did it. And so there is a great need for repentance. There is a great need to, to realize that without God, we are not saved. Without Christ, there is no hope. And in now we can understand the enormity, the great expanse of salvation, the enormous grasp that salvation spans and comes upon us with. For salvation is that thing that says, you will rebel, you will continue to rebel, but God so loved you that he sent his son to die for you, that as you believe on him, you shall have everlasting life. And so Jude here, in this 21st verse, says, the love of God. Now you look at this love of God, and you persevere in this love of God, and you work yourself to the point where you are continually growing in the grace and the knowledge of the love of God and bring yourself to the place where the love of God is expanding in your life and, it, and filling up the nooks and crannies of your soul. The apostle says, written upon the fleshy tablets of your heart. He also goes and becomes more expansive than that when he, when he quotes the psalmist and says, it must be written in the depth of the mind that we must hold these things of God as very dear. Now when you keep on saying, oh, but I chose to do this and I chose to do that, my dear friend, you're not understanding that your basic nature is enmity with God. You're not understanding that your basic nature is in such violent rebellion against God that there is no good thing in you, no nothing, and there is no righteousness. All that you ever have, all that we ever have, is the righteousness of Jesus that brings us to God, that brings us anywhere near to God. Now I understand that some of you might want to challenge that statement. You may. You should. But after much prayer and soul-searching, should you cast yourself before God and say, Now Lord, let's look at this thing. Because these years I have said, I have been choosing to do right, and I have been choosing to do wrong. When we are doing wrong, we are in shocking rebellion. We are showing our hatred for God. And wrong isn't in those massive, terrifying things always. It is in the insidious little thing, the insidious, wretched thing, the thing that creeps in, as Jude points out in other verses, that creep in unawares, things that just come through the side and the back door, things that sneak up on us that we hardly realize, or as the writer to the Hebrews says, this, the, the, the sin that doth so easily beset us. What's the sin that doth so easily beset you? Hmm? It may have no moral impact. It may no, have, have no terrifying overshadowing. The person that says, Oh, I could murder that person. Oh, I wish he was dead. 
Christians have come to me on many an occasion and they have said, you know, I just prayed that God would take that man out and he did, he died. I think you have to be terribly careful. Listen to the psalmist when he says this, deliver me from the guilt of shedding blood. Deliver me, says the old version of blood guiltiness. And I hear Christians saying silly things. Praying that someone will die. My dear friend, you best be very careful. Lest you misunderstand what prayer is. The perseverance of the saints is that we keep on keeping on. Though we're cast into a great shadow. Though we're left in some obscure corner. Though somehow all things seem to go against us. Though things seem to stack up and be like an insurmountable wall in front of us. Though difficulties may come from every, pl- every way and from every place. My dear friend, the word is this, that we go on with Jesus. Um, but we must discover this love. Love makes us look for the coming of Christ. And there are two reasons. Love always allays fear. If you go into the first epistle of John, the fourth chapter and the 18th verse, we read that in that day, in that day when Jesus comes, this love will allay all fear. The perfect love of Christ casteth out the fear that is in a man. The fear that he cannot be rid of this rebellion. The fear that he cannot somehow turn from this dreadful attitude towards God. This hatred that is natural and within that seems to continually and constantly express itself. Man comes to that place where he cries out, My God, my Lord, my God. And he lives in a continual position of repentance. And the fear is gone. Of whom would, the, would a Christian be afraid? Can the redeemed fear the Redeemer? Can the beloved fear the Savior? I think not. And when we are in Christ Jesus, the apostle speaks of being crucified and living in Christ and Christ living in Him. Can we then be frightened and afeared when Jesus is facing us? With great confidence, says the apostle, though I have all this rebellion within me, the things that I would, I do not. The things that I do, I would not. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the bondage of this flesh? Thanks be to God that giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In him we are more than conquerors. The apostle says, I will stand in his grace. I will stand in his purity. I will stand in his sanctification. I, with his love, am looking for his coming. The second thing is this. Love quickens the desire. Some of you older people have to look back a few years, but you remember the desire. It was six years ago this Sunday, today, now, that we first preached in this church as pastor and pastor's wife and family. We came to this place. It doesn't seem a long time, and yet a lot of things have happened. It seems as if it's always been this way. It seems as if we've always been here. And there is a love between the congregation and the pastor. There is a love that quickens us. I'm sure there are some that would say, wait wait a minute, don't include me in that. I'm sorry, but the others, those (laughs) that know it, Let's look at 2 Peter 3.12 and you discover there, looking for 
and hastening to the coming of the Lord. The Spirit of the Bride saith, Come. The Spirit of the Bride. She says, Come. Come to me. Song of Solomon. Some of you were bound to criticize me for this. You will think it perhaps vulgar. But the Bride says, Come to my bed. Come to be with me. Go to Song of Solomon. Read it for yourself. And you'll discover how the bride anticipates her husband, how she anticipates her saviour, how the church then anticipates her precious husband and Lord, her king of kings, her prince of princes, the Lord of peace. She welcomes him. And she loves. She loves. Don't you just love to be close to Jesus? If you're not right with the Lord Jesus, what I'm saying is absolute nonsense. It's some fairy tale. It's some ethereal thing that is without reach. You can't, you can't thrust your hands. You can't reach to it with your mind. You can't intellectually understand it. It's not understood with the intellect, argues the Apostle Paul. He says it's with the heart these things are understood. Do you love Jesus that much? Did you anticipate him? that you anticipate his love action with you and your reaction with him, that you anticipate that wondrous action as the bride of Christ being totally absorbed in the passion of Jesus. The love quickens the desire, argues the apostle, oh, to be absent from this body is to be present with my Lord. He argues with the church at Philippi and he says, you know, I really want to be with Jesus. That's far better for I shall be with him whom I love, whom my soul longs for, but I have to stay here for your sake. And I don't mind that because I know that all when I reach the Lord Jesus, I will love him all the more. It's a great thing when I listen to a young couple in, when we are conferencing before the wedding ceremony and they say we waited so many years for this wondrous time. We waited years to be married. Not some quick off the cuff deal, but we waited years. We've been preparing for years and we have been sort of anticipating for years this coming together. Then is the passion, then is the desire, then is the consummation of that love. Do you so anticipate Jesus? Not many of us do. You see, hear the difference of saint and sinner is very obvious. The saint is a person who is a sinner, saved by grace. And the saint anticipates Jesus' coming, anticipates being in love with Him, anticipates all eternity with Jesus and the sinner that is without Christ in his life. He anticipates Jesus coming and he is a little frightened, he is a little afeared that Jesus will come before he's got himself straightened out with God and he will be in a Christless, a lost eternity. Looking always leads to preparing and as we prepare ourselves, argues the Apostle in Jude 21, let us make sure that we are continually preparing ourselves for Jesus. The old idea of Song of Solomon points it out so beautifully. Queen Esther spent six months having her body bathed in perfumes and all sorts of ointments that she would be ready for her king. 
Our lives are spent with all sorts of perfumes and preparations for the coming of our King, for the reception of our King. That awful experience you went through, that terrifying scar that you encountered, that horrible thing that caught you when you didn't think it possibly could, that exposure that you never dreamt could possibly happen to you, those things that were being said about you behind the scene, every one of those things, all of them are gathering together to prepare you and they become like perfume and they become the ointment, the balm of Gilead that heals the sin-sick soul and it brings you into that place where you can discover Jesus is preparing me for Jesus. Now then, the day of Christ is coming. And the day of Christ's coming is, according to the word, if you go into Romans 13, verse 19, it is the day of manifestation. That is the day very obvious. It's obvious to all the world. Every eye shall see him. We shall discover. And the world will not be left in any limbo. It will understand that everything that those crazy Christians have been saying for years has now come into fruition. It is a fact. This cheap gospel that we have been parading for years, this very cheapened love of Jesus that we've been exposing for years will suddenly take on a whole new value system and Jesus will become precious and Jesus will become so precious that men and women shall understand he is God's hope of salvation he is the only hope to bring us into an eternity of glory it'll be the day of manifestation the day that Christ and his saints and their lives are hidden together and their glory is shared together it is also a day of perfection Christ comes and makes an end of what he has begun this creation I don't know how you see this creation I don't quite understand how we get away from the biblical text and we get away from what the Word of God teaches us but this creation is in a time zone it is nothing to do with eternity in that it is not eternal. The, the heavens and the earth, they're going to change. And Jesus is going to build his brand new regime. And there will be the saints that have loved him and have been faithful to him. Those saints will be in overall leadership in this new regime. The earth. We, we get so worked up about the little creepy crawlies that happen to be in one field so you mustn't build a house because there's a creepy crawly that is the most special and you can only find that creepy crawly 2,000 miles away so we, have, we can't build a house there because of the creepy crawly and that sounds very cynical on my part and I'm not trying to be cynical but the thing that we have to understand though we must preserve as much of this world as we as we can we must be good stewards of this earth we must be good stewards of the creatures that God has put in this world we must understand that this world is condemned already and we must get that into focus so that we can understand that this is not our abiding place this world is going and it shall be recreated brand new 
with a whole new system of government, it will not be democratic. A whole new system of understanding. And there will be enormous love and there will be an enormous sense of the presence and the brilliance and the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. The day is coming and it's a day of perfection when the imperfect is cast out and all things become new. First, it is to redeem our souls from sin and then our bodies from corruption. Then there is adoption. We are sons of God. We become the family of the Lord Jesus. But we have been handled as servants looking for adoption, argues the Apostle Paul in the 8th chapter of Romans. And in verse 23 especially, he says we are servants of God looking for that adoption. That adoption comes into fruition when Jesus comes and we see that we are adopted children. We understand for the first time as we're taken into our adopted home, into our adopted wondrous commonwealth, as we're taken into the new Jerusalem and we're taken into the new world with the new heavens. This world has a time zone. In eternity, it's a drop in a bucket. In eternal things, it's a small slice of eternity. You see, it is the day of perfection, so there is justification. Now our pardon is locally proclaimed. But then, according to Acts 3.19, the whole world will know that we've been justified by Christ. And the whole world will rejoice that this man and that woman and these children and these other people, people of all creeds and all colors and all races, these people from all the world, through all the generations, these people have become justified by the love of God, justified because of the cross of Christ, justified because of the pouring out of the blood of Jesus, justified because God is on his throne. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a great manifesto. You see, this day of perfection will reveal that redemption is what Jesus said it was. In Luke 21 and verse 28, we discover that the body is captive with the soul set at liberty. The body is in death till that day. For my soul to be set free, this, this body has to lie down. It has to be changed in the twinkling of an eye. It has to go through death. Something has to change because heaven is not filled with bodies as we understand bodies. It is not filled with flesh and blood as we understand flesh and blood. It's not filled with male and female as we understand male and female. It is changed and we are the bride of Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, with whom he will have most intimate contact. You see, this day is a day also of gathering the congregation. Look at verse 6 of, of Jude here. We discover, he says this, the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains, the judgment day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example 
of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. What a terrifying thing. There is an example. We have allowed all of this to take place in our generation. We have encouraged it. We encourage it in all sorts of ways. The day of the gathering of the congregation together, now scattered, then assembled, Psalm 1 verse 6 tells us, is a fantastic thing. God assembling his people together, all assembled at the place of our Lord Jesus. Quickly and close with this. Let me share this. The apostle says, we are also looking for the mercy in the, old, in the old version. Looking for the mercy. God's mercy. You know, something we don't talk about. I don't know why we don't talk about the mercy of God more than we do. I don't know why congregations of the people of God don't think about mercy. We are, in some ways, the most merciless people in the world. We say, and we boast very largely, we speak the truth, but we speak it in such a way that nobody wants to hear it because of the hurt and because of the damage. A friend of mine went to a service and listened to a certain preacher who was quite well known. And he came out afterwards and our conversation went something like this. I said, well, I wasn't able to go to the service, but tell me, what was it like? Did he speak the truth? Did he teach the truth? Oh, yes, he said. He taught the truth. There's no question about that but he taught it in such a way that I hope I don't have to be one that believes the truth. We sometimes preach the truth and it becomes so repugnant. It becomes an untruth. We don't want to hear it. Or it becomes so bitter that we don't want to experience it. We need to go to the place where we understand mercy. What is looking for mercy? It implies that patience is a very necessary ingredient to understand mercy. Patience is waiting God's pleasure amid present difficulties. There needs to be hope. Oh, there needs to be so much hope. Sometimes there is blindness amidst all the goodness, illegitimacy amongst all the genuine and we have to somehow sort through it all. We need to come up with some answers about this so that we can understand that God has mercy and mercy and grace are the first notes in all the orchestration of heaven. This wretched business that goes on in our politics, it goes on in our media, it goes on in our churches, it goes on between, between pastors and congregation and vice versa. It's a tragic, dreadful thing. Guilt by accusation. We parade it and we feel big as we do it. We feel that we are strong in doing it. But when we look at 2 Thessalonians 2.16, we discover a clue. It's full of hope. And the hope is the mercy of God. Those that express themselves in such a way have little understanding of mercy. In fact, I doubt if they understand that God has ever been merciful to them. It's easy to bring this analogy because the Lord Jesus uses this expression. He says, as you want to be forgiven, you forgive. So the quality of your forgiveness will be the evidence of the forgiveness that you'll receive. That, using that as an illustration, not the principle. The illustration of the principle, the principle being that we need to express mercy. 
We can only express mercy as we have received mercy. We receive mercy by discovering our eyes opened to receive and understand that God so loved me, that God so loved me, that God so loved me that He gave His only begotten Son. The comprehension of the word love is the, usually the hang-up. It's not to be a blind hope. It's not to be a fond and ignorant hope. It's certainly not to be a presumption. Child of darkness gropes around in the darkness hoping that someone will rescue them. My dear friend, God has rescued you. And if you're still groping and stumbling and smashing your shins and breaking your nails and causing yourself a great deal of distress as you wander around the room in which your life is being lived, I would quickly say to you with great love, God has expressed himself with enormous mercy. He has seen your plight. He has seen your banterings and your bashings. He has heard your cries of pain. He has listened to your agonies. He has learned to listen to the cry that comes out of the darkness of your room. And he says this, I so love you that I will lift you up out of that slime pit, out of that darkness room. I will lift you up out of that blackness and I will set your feet on a rock. I will put a song in your mouth. Jesus said, I will be your light. And when you're hungry, I will be your bread. And when you're thirsty, I will quench your thirst. And when you don't know the way, I will show you the way. And when you don't understand the truth, I will reveal the truth. And when you don't have any life left, I'll give you new life. And Jesus has said, though you are dead, yet shall you live. And if somehow you're fumbling around that room and everything is black, and everything is dark, and the furniture seems to have been moved since last. You crashed into it, and you're crashing into it again, and your life is a continual bewilderment. Jesus says, listen, listen to me quickly before you stumble again. I am the door by me if any man enter. When the door cracks open, the light floods in. And as you stumble around that wretched room, and if you dare to shut that door... Or if you dare not to lean on it so it opens wide and you walk out, but it just opens a crack and you stand there wondering what to do. Listen to Jesus. He says, listen to me very carefully. I'll be your shepherd. I'll take you by the hand. I'll put you upon my shoulder. I'll lead you out of that dark room. I'll lead you out of that fumbling experience. I'll lead you away from that wretchedness. And I'll be a shepherd. And I'll tend you. And I'll tend your wounds. And I'll soothe your spirit. And I'll give you peace. And I'll give you joy. Because I love you. Have you ever come to that place? Or are you still stumbling around? Hmm? Have you ever come to that place? Or are you still in that wretched darkness? Oh, says the, the apostle, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, he's coming. Hmm. That's great. I look forward to the day. Do you look forward to seeing Jesus? Will he stand ashamed? Or will he be full of joy? How will you stand with Jesus? 
Think about it. Won't it be wonderful to say, Lord, my rebellion was covered in thy blood. My wretchedness was washed in thy spirit. Lord, I thank you. I thank you so much that I did not choose you because I couldn't, but you did see me and you did choose me. You did choose me. I think the hymn I, I shall sing in heaven, and this is silly, I know, but I think the hymn I shall sing in heaven will be the last verse of that when I survey the wondrous cross. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You ever thought of that? You'll be able to stand with Jesus and say, here I am, all. Here I am, all. Will you bow with me now in prayer? While your heads are bowed, I'm going to ask you if you recently got right with the Lord or just now you're still struggling in that room and you want to get out of it. I'm going to ask you not to address necessarily all the theological problems, but quietly address the Lord Jesus. Speak with him this way. Lord, become my Savior. Become my King. I receive you as my Redeemer. Our Father, we ask this day that many may pray that prayer, that in its simplicity may be contained the dedication of what's left of the life to live on this earth and what is left for all eternity. We do so pray that in this congregation now, men and women shall quietly say, Lord Jesus Christ, I come. Help us now, for Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen.